Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right. Well, as we should always do before we open God's word, let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we praise your name and we do thank you that So much of your word has yet to come to pass. And Lord, for every prophecy that spoke of your first arrival to die for us, there are at least eight of your return in power and glory as our king. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for preserving your word and giving it to us so that we can build up our faith that, Lord, no matter what the world or the enemy throws at us, we can march through it by your side and get to the other side of this where you have our life, our future life, hidden with you, Christ. Lord, we thank you for that promise from Colossians. And so, Lord, we love you and we praise your mighty name. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are on uh, God's Prophetic Word, Part 9. And what I wanted to do was, you know, we've covered a lot of things we're seeing, kind of the setup for the seven-year tribulation, what's going on in the world ahead of us. And we've covered the rapture. We've covered the 70 weeks of Daniel. We've covered what triggers the start of the seven-year tribulation, which is the Antichrist affirming a covenant with Israel. We've covered the preparation for the next temple, where Israel will reinstitute sacrifices, which are then taken away three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist causes then that abomination of desolation from Matthew 24, Daniel 9, and 2 Thessalonians 2. We've covered Israel's readiness to receive a false messiah, uh, they're labeling him the Unica or Yanuka, however you want to pronounce it right now, and not saying it's he's the Antichrist or the false prophet, but they are accepting him as such, even though he may not be one of, one of those two characters. But it just shows you how Israel is, is so ready to receive a false Messiah or an Antichrist or a false prophet right now. And then, of course, we spent a lot of time looking at the characteristics of that beast system that's going to set up and someone's going to walk into it and take over. And you and I are promised the only thing not to be here for is the rise of the Antichrist. And so we have the potential to see the Ten Kings get set up, this system in place of which the Antichrist will rise out of and conquer and put down three of the Ten Kings the other seven consolidate power under him. And then we'll have this seven-year tribulation. And so kind of on this second chart, what I did was I took from the rise of the Antichrist, and I just kind of extended it out to show you we don't really know the time gap between the rapture and the Antichrist, uh, the rise of the Antichrist, okay? 
The Bible doesn't make that clear. We know that the Antichrist rises out of the ten kings. He puts three of them down. The other seven consolidate power, which is probably what leads to Israel's acceptance of him, is to see him conquer these other three nations or three uh, districts of the world, however you want to put it. And then they consolidate power. When he affirms the covenant with Israel, that's what triggers the start of what Jesus called the worst time in human history, that seven-year period. So it's broken down into two three-and-a-half-year segments. Three and a half years from when he affirms the covenant to when the abomination of desolation is set up in the Holy of Holies. Then another three and a half years from that point until Jesus returns. So you have the Bible defines it as three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It's the most documented period of time in the Bible, in the whole council of God's word. And God, remember, God always works on 360 day years. And so it's why the Lord labels it 1,260 days. It's 360 times three and a half. So he always works on that calendar. So you have three and a half years, abomination, desolation, three and a half years, the return of the king. Well, when Jesus returns, a lot happens before the millennium is set up. There's a 75-day interval from Daniel 12. It's the last three verses of the book of Daniel. Daniel 12, 11, 12, and 13 there's a 75-day interval that Jesus does a lot to clean up and set up the millennium. And then the millennium begins for a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem from the throne of David. So what we're going to study today, what I wanted to do to kind of close out this series before we start the book of Nahum, is look at the, the point of which Jesus returns and then what happens from there. So today we're going to take the first part of that, part nine, the return of the king, and it's not a, uh, this is not a sequel or, or part four of the Lord of the Rings, right? Even though it kind of sounds like it at times when you study it in the Bible, it's, you could just picture almost that whole army, you know, running down the hill and charging the castle. It's kind of what you see in Revelation. So nowhere is, is Revelation is the most documented book, the, the book that documents the most of Jesus returning. And so if you haven't studied the book of Revelation it's incredible. I actually, I actually tell people that just become Christians to start there because it, it is an incredible book that you can realize who Jesus is for all eternity. And it's, it shows who has the authority, who he is in, in power and glory. And it's the one, he is the one which the world is accountable to and yet wants complete independence from. And when you look at the World Economic Forum, here's a quote from Yuval Noah Harari who uh, might be the leading candidate for the false prophet if the church was removed right now. But his quote, he's a, he's a Jewish uh, man, an Israel, Israelite, that is, uh, blasphemes Jesus every chance he can. And his quote is, God is dead, it's just taking a while to get rid of the body. And he, every time he's in an interview, he opens his mouth and just blasphemes Jesus. Uh, but he, he never denies that he's real. He just blasphemes what he can do and who he is as the son of God. And so you're seeing, you're seeing a setup, but it's just taking a while to get rid of the body. Um, he has a surprise coming because Jesus is coming back and his, his ending, if he doesn't repent, uh, will be much worse than he's considering. 
But Revelation is the book which culminates all things. I just put a couple slides in here from what we covered a couple years ago, but it is everything that we get to look forward to in Jesus. If you've never studied it, it's the only book of the Bible that declares a blessing on those that read it and hear the words of this prophecy. It's in Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. You have to keep them. You can't just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer of the word. And part of the issue in the church today is there are a lot of hearers of the word and very few doers of the word. They hear it on Sunday, they leave, and then they go right back to what they were doing before. And they don't let it sink in and change and radically build them up and revolutionize their life. But keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. It's also the only book of the Bible that gives you an outline in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Okay, the things which are hereafter are after the church is closed. Okay, it's the only book, book of the Bible also that details explicitly the future and declares itself to be prophecy. Remember back in verse 3? They that hear the words of this prophecy. The whole book is prophetic. And don't forget from Revelation 19 verse 10, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So when you study prophecy, when you study God's word, it's the only way that Jesus authenticates his message to you and I is through prophecy. Uh, there are a lot of books written around religious texts, right, all, all around the world that people try to read. The Bible is the only one that predicts history in advance with 100% accuracy that Jesus wrote for us to know because studying prophecy, it is the testimony of Jesus and who he is. It's the unveiling of our king. So don't forget Revelation, that word just means apocalypsis. And apocalypsis in, in culture, right, in secular culture, the apocalypse, you think of a lot of bad things. You think of hellfire, brimstone, buildings collapsing, planes crashing, people running for their lives. But isn't it amazing that in the Greek, that word simply means to unveil. It's the unveiling. It's who is Jesus as the king and the conqueror. And that's really what the whole book of Revelation is about. So there's that outline. Chapter one is the things which thou hast seen. It's Jesus glorified, coming back to rule and to reign in his glorified state as a resurrected king. Chapters two and three are the things which are, which is the church age, the first seven letters that Jesus wrote, or the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And then chapter four on to the end are the things which shall be hereafter, after the church age. The church age closes with the church of Laodicea. Chapter four, verse one opens with a voice as of the sound of a trumpet and a door open in heaven and the church is caught up and then everything else happens. So four things are corrected in Revelation if you've never studied it. The church will be back in its rightful home, heaven. Israel will be back in its rightful home, the land God promised them all the way back in Genesis. And it's not the little bit of land they occupy right now. It's from the river Nile through the middle of Egypt to the river Euphrates through the middle of Iraq, modern day Iraq. That's the boundary that the Lord promised Abram. So Israel will be back in that land. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David, which the angel promised to marry, remember when she was pregnant. And all evil will be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, the lake of fire. When you look through the judgments of Revelation, 
you can't count the number of sevens in the book. It goes on forever. Uh, there are hidden sevens. There are sevens that are out there for you to see. But the judgments, the three sets of judgments all follow what the Jews call a heptatic structure. It's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And when you go through the first six seals, there's a gap of time between the sixth and the seventh on each judgment, the way the book is organized. So between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's an entire chapter, chapter seven, which is this kind of gap. And then the seventh opens up the seven trumpets. Then the seventh trumpet opens the seven bowls. And so it's this unfolding of judgments like that. The final six chapters of the Bible, I, I like to call, you know, the World Economic Forum has their great reset. This is really the great reset, is the final six chapters of the Bible. You have Mystery Babylon destroyed, the Doom of Babylon, the King of Kings, Jesus steps foot on the second on earth on the second time, the millennium, then the new heaven and new earth, and eternity and the closing promises. It's it's amazing. It's really Jesus setting things back in order. Okay, so what we're going to look at today as we study this, this journey through God's prophetic word is the return of Jesus and what it means to us today as the church, okay? Because you and I have a responsibility. We are living for the king to get to this point. Everything that you do in your life, everything you say, everything you do for the kingdom, everything you do in the flesh, not in the spirit, all of it will decide this point for you, where we're going, into the millennium, into eternity with the king, okay? You're saved. I'm, I'm a, most of you here are saved. Uh, but if you're not born again, come see us afterwards. But if, you, if you're saved, you're going to be here. You are in the church age. You're going to be coming back with Jesus at this moment and to help him set up the kingdom. And what you're doing right now is a training ground. You and I are training for something that really what our true mission will be on the other side of this. And what you do in this training ground determines what Jesus entrusts you with in the kingdom. So in verse 11, in Revelation 19, it's one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, but in Revelation 19, this is where you see Jesus return. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You know, Jesus, remember in Matthew when he said, I came with a sword, father will be against son, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and he goes through that whole list. You know, he, Jesus is divisive. The truth is divisive. Uh, truth is, is very cutting. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, divine amongst asunder the soul and the spirit. And so just don't be surprised if in your life you have relationships that ultimately end when you stay faithful to the Lord. You really could do nothing wrong at all, absolutely nothing, but just living for Jesus and loving people and you will divide and people will go out of, in and out of your life all the time. It's just a fact. Um, I saw it my whole life through high school and college it, me personally, I lost a lot of friends in college, a lot of friends that um, I grew up with in high school, and they went a different path than I did in college, and it's painful. But what you're seeing today, even with high school kids and middle school kids, it is even more so. 
I mean, the people, the, the kids that are out there living for the Lord, it is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It just feels like even here in Oklahoma City. But what we're going to see here in Revelation 19, you and I will be there. We're on white horses. We are following the Lord down back to the earth. Remember, we meet him in the air at the trumpet for the rapture. We come back with him at the end of the tribulation when heaven is opened. And I always like to think of uh, Jesus splitting the space-time continuum because I, I went to a lot of air shows as a kid growing up in Air Force bases and things, watching the fighter jets come over, and you'd see some come by and like break the sound barrier, and you'd hear the sonic boom in the distance, and they're just breaking the sound barrier. I mean, imagine Jesus breaking the dimensional barrier where you and I will be with him, and he just rips open space-time, and we're coming back with him. It's going to be incredible. That boom will radiate, I think personally, to the ends of the universe and back. It'll be that loud. And it's going to be an event that every single person on the earth will see. There's, there's nobody on the earth at that time that will not see what's going on. And remember, we live in a world that is much less physical than the spiritual world we will spend eternity in. Uh, the world that we are in is, is very, very much empty space mainly. And so the rest of the dimensions, the other, we live in three and a half, the other six and a half are all curled less than 1.6 times 10 to the negative 35 meters. That's why we can't access them. But that's why like CERN that we've been talking about here, they are trying to get on that other side. They're trying to open that spiritual veil to get information back through. And Hebrews 11.3, when we went through Hebrews, we covered all that. But Hebrews 11.3, that's what, that's what the, the book of Hebrews has said for thousands of years. So in verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So you and I will have a name from Jesus, a white stone with a new name, remember, that no man knows. But he has given, Jesus has that. And the word crowns here in the Greek, it's a diadem, which is a ruling crown. It's different than the Stephanos, which is a victor's crown. So the Antichrist in Revelation 6, remember, he has a Stephanos. He has a, a victor's crown, not a diadem, not a ruling crown. Jesus is the only one with that. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, you can track this down all through the Bible, but... Jesus is the word of God. So when you study the Bible, you are sitting with the author and creator himself. You are opening, literally opening Jesus and sitting with him and letting him wash over you continually. That's why Ephesians pleads with us to wash with the regenerative water of the word and to wash our minds constantly because he is the word of God and the word was with God and the word was God and the same was beginning with God. Okay, remember, and he made everything, and by him from Colossians, all things are held together by his word. Uh, we learned that in, in a scientific breakthrough a few years ago, that every atom in the universe is held together by sound waves, by Jesus' sound waves. They discovered sound waves is what holds every single atom in the universe together. And here we are in verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Okay, so the armies that are, we are with him, 
but we are arrayed in fine linen. Okay, so note the difference. We're white and clean with him. Look, remember back in Revelation 3? He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. See, if you are an overcomer, if you are living for the Lord in your life, and you overcome the trials and tribulations of this world, and what the enemy tries to throw at you to take you off of your walk with the king, you have a reward at the end of this to be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Don't you want Jesus to stand in the throne room of the, of the universe and to confess your name before God that you, you finished the race, you ran successful, you finished strong, you didn't let the world sway you away, you didn't back off of truth, off of the word of God, that you pressed on to the end, and as a result, you get to stand in the throne room in front of God's throne, and Jesus confess your name before the Father. It's amazing. You know, when you get saved, it's so easy. You just, you have to confess his name, but then, then the, really the hard part begins, which is this whole sanctification process and submitting your life to the Lord. But then at the end of it, when he confesses your name before the Father, what an amazing juxtaposition there. In 1 John 5, 5, so who is the overcomer? Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, in verse 15, so we're with him. The armies in heaven are following him. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. You can find that throughout Psalms, uh, throughout the Gospels even. Uh, several spots in the Bible, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron on the earth. Sin is judged immediately in the millennium. And we'll look at one of those characteristics uh, as we close out this study. But sin's judged right away. There is no more this hey, I murdered someone and I'm, I'm due a fair trial and I'm going to sit for years and years through the, the justice system, uh, maybe sit in prison for years and years without finally getting what one is due, right? Uh, that all goes away. Everything is judged immediately. Jesus takes care of it right away. It'll be very different. Um, you will, you will kind of question, well, well, if it's judged immediately, and people see it judged immediately, why would somebody else think they can do that? <laughs> because they know what's going to happen, but yet people still will. And he hath on his vesture on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he has this name on his vesture, and what's amazing is how is it written? We're not really quite sure, but we're going to cover that in just a second. Okay, in verse 15 though, he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So all the way back, if you were here a couple of years ago, we studied Revelation 14 and what that kind of was about. But he'll tread the winepress and does not need us to help. He does it alone. But we get to be there with him. We follow him on our white horses. And in fact, the oldest prophecy written in the Bible that we have today is a prophecy of that event. It's in Jude verses 14 and 15, uttered by Enoch. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints 
to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodliness in those verses. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of ungodliness that Jesus is going to come back and make right. And so what we have to realize is the oldest, from the oldest prophecy uttered in the word of God, because remember Genesis 3.15 was uttered by the Lord, but the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet was about these events that finish the entire Bible in Revelation 19 and beyond when we are with him. But, you know, we don't get to, we don't get to take part in the war. And I, I'm still asking the Lord if we can just do something before he speaks. But uh, I don't think he's going to let us. So we get to sit back and watch him just handle it all as we, as we should. But what are we seeing here? So when he comes back, the, the wrath of Almighty God. So remember when Jesus opens his ministry in Luke 4 in the synagogue, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, when you go back and you see what Jesus is quoting, he's reading directly from Isaiah 61, the first two verses. And when you go to that part of Isaiah, this is what he read in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, which he did. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, which he did, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, so he stops there at that comma and he closes the book and he hands it back to the priest and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And what he did not read was the closing verse, part of verse two, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn because that was not his mission the first time. His mission for that part is the second time the day of vengeance of our God. Remember, we looked at Romans 12 last week. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, when you study that further in Isaiah 61, verse 2, you can actually find 24 locations in the Bible that are hidden, hidden like that, that are a split of time that the church is in between. So that comma, in between the acceptable year of the Lord, the church exists between the Lord and the and in, in terms of time. And there's 24 spots in the Bible where that occurs, which links to, the, of course, the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, so we come back with him. Jesus speaks. We looked at Zechariah 14 last week when he wipes out his enemies with the word of his mouth. And what happens then after he treads the wine press, 
he goes to rescue the remnant of Israel. And you see this in Isaiah 63. The remnant of Israel who obeyed Jesus' instructions from Matthew 24 flee somewhere in Jordan. Uh, We know that Jordan does not fall under the thumb of the Antichrist, probably for this very reason. But Jesus comes to get them after he's wiped out all of the enemies. And this is in Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1. This is Israel speaking. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? So he's in white apparel when we're with him. We ride down. He vanquishes the enemies. And his white garments are then blood-soaked because he's tread the winepress of the wrath of God by himself. You know, think of like making wine in ancient times when they would smash on grapes and it would splatter up on whatever you're wearing. It's that, that's why the Holy Spirit's using that kind of language. That, that this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, and then Jesus speaking, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So there's only one person ever born that can say that, and that is Jesus. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? So Israel's asking him, why, why are your garments all stained red? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. One thing you can note all throughout the Bible as you're studying, anywhere you see the right hand of God or the the arm of the Lord, it's always speaking of Jesus. Just keep that in mind. And I'll tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I'll bring down their strength to the earth. So all of this haughtiness and we don't need you, Jesus, we want to rebel against you. We want to do things our way. Remember from Psalms 2, the kings gather themselves together saying, let us break the bands asunder. And they want to live without the bands of the Lord. Uh, they, are, they are rebelling against him. And what happens, the same thing happens when a Christian rebels against the Lord. What you're saying is, I want to do things my way, not your way, Lord. Even though you're my king, even though I've confessed to you, even though I've surrendered my life to you, I want to go and do things my way. Okay, well, where is this wine press? So in verse 20 here, in, verse, in chapter 14, and the wine press was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse's bridle by the space of 1,600 furlongs. So Jesus is on the horse, Mount Megiddo is to the north of Israel, of of Jerusalem. The horse's bridle, if you sat on a horse, it would be roughly about four feet high. You know, four to four and a half feet, something like that. 1,600 furlongs, if you don't go and spend your weekends at Remington Park, is uh, about 230 miles, just roughly. Mount Megiddo is north of Jerusalem, and the Valley of Jehoshaphat is in the south. So Basra... Um, is named in Isaiah as the place where the Lord treads the winepress. Well, that is, this is that place, what you're seeing on the map. So the distance between the furthest point on this, on this war front is literally 1,600 furlongs. I went to Google Maps and just put in from Megiddo down 
down to the end of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and it's 1,600 furlongs, sure enough. So imagine that distance will be filled with the blood of Jesus' enemies when he returns. That how, that's how many soldiers and armies are surrounding Jerusalem. And he speaks and wipes them out, and the blood comes up to the horse's bridle and stains his garment, his raiment. And then he goes, as we just looked at in Isaiah 63, to get the children of Israel and bring them back to set up the kingdom. That's one of the things he does in that 75-day interval. Okay, so he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, it's just interesting. I just am throwing this out there for thought for all of you. But how is the name written on Jesus? My speculation is that it's written in light. That's just my speculation, though, because God's throne is surrounded by the rainbow. Now, and I think that you and I will be able to see something of that when we get our resurrected body at the rapture, because when you study uh, the light spectrum, spectral colors are really, your eyes can only see a small portion of light waves. Uh, Spectral colors are known loosely as the rainbow colors, right? Roy G. Bibb, you can remember it from that acronym, R-O-Y-G-B-I-V. You can remember the colors of the rainbow then, seven of them. In God's rainbow, there's seven. In the rainbows that are against God, there's only six. So they take one away uh, because six is the number of man. But even though the spectral colors are just a subset of all colors, there's still an infinite amount of spectral colors because the light spectrum goes on infinitely in both directions. So in our resurrected body, when we have our new eyes, you'll be able to see the entire light spectrum, which means trillions and trillions of new colors, not different shades of colors, but new colors. And you'll probably spend an eternity seeing new colors continuously. Everything will be different because you'll be able to see the sounds coming off of an instrument in worship. When we're in the throne room of heaven, you can then see the sound waves. You can see the sounds coming off. With your new senses, you'll be able to hear colors. And I remember when our daughter was, was very young, she mentioned, she's actually, when she made this comment, it made me look into this. But one of the things she's told me is, um, Dad, you know, in heaven, there's all kinds of new colors. I was like, oh, that's cool, Mabry. What, what do you mean? And she said, well, I can't describe them to you because you can't see them here. It's not like a different shade of blue or a different shade of pink. They're new colors. So I just, I just want you to know that. And I was like, wow, okay, this is, <laughs> this is a very deep discussion at 8.30 at night when I'm trying to uh, pray over you and get ready for the next day. But that's awesome. So I looked into it, and sure enough, the light spectrum goes on in infinitely in both directions, and your eyes right now can only see a very small subset of it, those seven colors. And think about how beautiful our world is with just those seven colors. Think about that. Think about how beautiful heaven will be with trillions of new colors. It's amazing, just incredible, when you and I get that resurrected body at the rapture. Okay, so when Jesus returns, Two things are happening, the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb. And we looked at this a little bit two years ago, but I thought it was important to cover one more time because there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding on what exactly is happening with the marriage versus the marriage supper. 
and two different events, one in heaven, one on the earth. And I wrote Acts 17, 11 as, as the forefront of that just because really you have to keep in mind this is Matt Freeman's opinion. Okay, I've, I've searched the scriptures and this is what I see, but I haven't found anyone that has necessarily agreed with me yet. Um, and not that I need that, but you have the, the onus and responsibility to go back and search the Bible and see if this makes sense to you and ask the Lord, Lord, is this, is this right? Um, you've got to search the scriptures as a Berean with an open, open and ready mind to receive what the Holy Spirit has for you in this. But the marriage of the lamb, this is, again, this is what I'm finding out of God's word in it. It's a small gathering in heaven, and the marriage supper of the lamb is a huge gathering on the earth. And I think when you, I didn't put all the verses in here, but when you rightly divide and you look up the marriage versus the marriage supper throughout the Bible, the marriage supper always tends to be, in the parables at least, on the earth, right? They went out looking for people, and there's a, anyway... In Revelation 19, 7, so this is before heaven is open and Jesus comes back. Remember in verse 11, that's when that happens. Back up four verses to verse 7 before that. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her, the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. So a different event now. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And if you think about the marriage, the church as the bride of Christ, you know, you and I have an opportunity to be a part of the most incredible event to happen for all eternity, which is Jesus as the bridegroom marrying and being a part of us as the church, being a part of him forever, betrothed to the king forever in a ceremony in heaven. And we don't talk enough about it as a church, I think, globally, because there's a condition to it that you have to make yourself ready for it. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called the marriage supper. And then afterwards, when we come back, the supper in Jewish tradition, we're going to close this message looking at the Jewish wedding. It was open as a huge gathering. But that real marriage, and have you prepared yourself to be called by your bridegroom to meet him in the air and go into the wedding? And, you know, God... God formed the wedding covenant as his way to show us the most intimate form of relationship on the earth. And yet it pales in comparison to what our relationship will be with him for eternity in that kind of relationship. A marriage is just a, it's a shadow. It's a, it's a type, right? It's a foreshadowing of something much larger. And that's why, one of the reasons why I love the mission statement that the Lord wrote to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Because when he returns, we get to go to that wedding. And so we've got to ready ourselves. Remember the parable of the ten virgins from Matthew 25? Let's look at this, the first 13 verses here. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps 
and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Notice that all 10 of them are light bearers. They're all light bearers. And what is Levitically all through the Bible, what does oil represent? The Holy Spirit, right? So just keep that in mind. You are a light bearer. And the question is, are you overflowing with the Holy Spirit or not? Because in the Greek, in the New Testament, there are two different fillings of the Holy Spirit. Once when you get saved, you are permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit forever. The second is when you sanctify, go through the sanctification process, you yield yourself to the Lord and you allow the Holy Spirit to take control of your life. You set it above emotions. You don't do things out of anger. You don't do things out of lust or greed or any of those other things that you used to do in your old life. You let the Holy Spirit take control. You surrender to him. You get into God's word, and then it's overflowing out of you like a fountain of living waters. That's the second indwelling or filling. In the Greek, it makes it really clear. Okay, so five were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. So they were light bearers, but they were not overflowing with the Holy Spirit. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. How long can, if you have a lamp, which we, I don't even know why we have one of these, but we have an oil lamp at our house that, and if you light it, it is smoky. It, it's like, there is so much, you have to clean soot off the ceiling almost. Uh, it's so smoky. But if you've never seen one of those, you can burn a wick in it for a little bit with no oil, but not very long. And that's the same thing as you're a light bearer without indwelling the Holy Spirit and letting it overflow in your life. You can be a light for a little bit of time, but not very long because you will burn out. You'll burn out and your light will diminish and you'll be one of these foolish ones who has no oil when the king comes back. Okay, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, Matthew 25, 7, and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. In other words, hey, this is a free market society. Go earn your own oil. Uh, you don't get to take my oil just to, be, to look good before the Jesus. We won't say who they're acting like. but And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they, were, they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. Okay, so those that were full of oil went into the marriage. Those that were not were outside, and the door was shut. Okay? Afterward came also the other version, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherewith the Son of Man cometh. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. The ten virgins took their lamps, they were light bearers, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of those virgins were wise because they had extra oil. They had served in such a way they had excess overflowing out of them. The other five were foolish because they did not have any oil. They were dry. The word foolish in the Greek uh, means double-minded. 
So if you've never studied Jude, Jude talks a lot about being double-minded as a Christian. He describes, the Holy Spirit in Jude describes those believers as clouds with no water. They're just tossed around by the wind. You know, waves that just go to the direction of the wind. Being double-minded means I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to let other things direct my path, like the world and influences from other, other sources, and I'm going to be double-minded. I love him sometimes, but really not all the time. Okay, that's kind of what it means to be double-minded. In the Greek, the word wise, it means single-minded, one life being lived, and it is for Jesus. So these believers are full of light. You can look Luke 11:34 about that. The word wise is from the root word uh, in the Greek, which means to rein in or curb the emotions. So can you, can you rein in and submit your flesh to the Holy Spirit? That's the key. So these virgins were wise because they allowed God to continually rule in their life, which then allowed the Spirit of God, the oil, to come forth and produce fruit. So they asked the wise if they could have some of their oil. They cannot pass their fruit, their outpouring, to another believer. Then the foolish leave to buy some, and the bridegroom shows up, and the wise virgins who were ready, worthy, and prepared went into the wedding. The door shut, and he answers, Jesus answers them, I knew you not, I know you not. So in the Greek, that word, that know, uh, aido, it means to have regard for one, cherish, pay attention, to know intimately, to see or to perceive. The Lord's saying to these five foolish ones, I don't know you intimately. We've not had a close relationship. In other words, you are not a partaker of my life. Right? We, and we went, we've gone through this a lot uh, here at church just in terms of the different rewards for a life of faithful service, the five crowns Jesus has laid out, the rewards to the overcomer. You have a reason to stay strong in Jesus. Okay, look at the parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and had treated them spitefully and slew him. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And literally he did that in 70 AD after they killed Jesus. Uh, when the Roman Empire ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and Israel's never been the same since until they were regathered May 14th of 1948. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Remember, we, when we did the study between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, we studied what the outer darkness was, the area of less light, 
Um, you have the wedding, and there are guests in the wedding. Then the marriage supper on the earth, where Israel, when they are resurrected, joins us for that wedding supper. But those that there's someone in heaven that apparently tries to sneak in, and he's not worthy to be there. So he has a different spot in the millennium. Uh, the word outer darkness, it means persons in whom darkness becomes visible and holds sway. It's the area of less light. Remember 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Okay, look at Ephesians 5, 11, just skipping down there. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You've got to reprove darkness. So this parable is talking about what the kingdom from heaven will be like, Matthew 22, 2. And the kingdom was originally intended for the Jews. Remember, you can find that in Matthew 23, 7, verse 7, where Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he talks about how he would have gathered them all and ushered in the kingdom had they just accepted him. The marriage ceremony in heaven, the marriage feast supper on the earth. And my question, my challenge question that everyone should be praying about is, is the bride a subset of the body of Christ? And I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just throwing it out there for you guys to think about and pray about. You've got to search the scriptures and see. I don't know. It's not really clear throughout the Bible if the entire church is the bride or if it's a subset. And the only kind of place that I can see a model of that is with Eve. Because Adam was the, the first Adam. Eve was taken out of his side as a subset. So if Jesus is the last Adam, could his bride also be taken out of his side as a subset? Uh, the model would fit. Remember when Jesus' side was pierced in John 19, verse 34? But one of the soldiers with, with a spear pierced on his side, and for, forthwith came there out blood and water. The overflowing of the Holy Spirit is for the bride, and it is your choice. Remember, because water poured out of his side, the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist even called himself a friend of the bridegroom, separate from the bride. In John 3, verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy therefore, is fulfilled. He's calling himself not a part of the bride. He called himself a friend so John the Baptist very well could be one of the guests at the wedding, uh, but he's not a part of the bride. He's a friend of the bridegroom. Remember, Old Testament saints before the church, they get their resurrected bodies when Jesus steps foot on the earth to attend the marriage supper. And you see that in Job 19, verse 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. Remember last week we looked in Zechariah 14 of when he will stand on the earth again. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So if your works abide the testing of fire at the Bema seat, in 2 Corinthians 3, you can look that up, you will have on the garment of the fine linen from Revelation 3, 4. And if our works are burned up, we will be found naked just like Adam and Eve. It's the same thing. They forsook God's calling, and so they were found naked. The word in the Greek means that we were once in a position to array ourselves, 
but we chose not to. When you look at that and you go study that. Joshua, the high priest, was barred from ministering to the Lord because he had on filthy garments in Zechariah 3, verses 3 and 4. So because the man in this parable, going back to the wedding supper and the wedding, I mean, did not have on the proper attire, he was denied admittance to the wedding festivities and the king cast him out. And cast out simply means he was sent away, put into another room, a separate area outside of the wedding celebration. And the absence of a wedding garment does not prevent a believer from being in the area of the kingdom, but it does prevent you from taking part in the festivities and having a deeper relationship with the Lord. It's kind of like if I asked everyone in this room, how many of you know Donald Trump? You know, all of you would raise your hands. All of you know who Donald Trump is. How many of you could say Donald Trump knows you? You know, not many, right? Maybe, there's probably nobody in this room. See, do you see the difference in the direction of the relationship? Everyone knows who Jesus is, but does Jesus know you? Have you submitted your life to him so that he knows you intimately? That's the question. So let's be honest, right? Most of us don't want to hear that the... That, we need to persevere, run the race, submit our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And what's hard about being a living sacrifice is you really want to crawl off that altar, right? Every other sacrifice in the Old Testament was dead. It was, would lay on the altar, they'd burn it up, whatever. To be a living one, you've got to stay there. You have to have resolve. You have to stay put. You have to sacrifice yourself continually and it would be much easier to say, just get saved and, and do nothing else with it, right? That would be an easy road to take. But wide is the road that leads to destruction. Uh, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. So when you rightly divide the word of God, there's a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. So remember in 2 Peter 3, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Remember when Jesus takes his word back and atoms are no longer held together by his word. What happens when you split an atom? It's a nuclear bomb. It's the, it's the most powerful force that we know on earth today is nuclear energy. So he takes his, his sound back, his voice back. Atoms start to fall apart and the heavens literally melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. That's our call. We have to be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. You've got to be diligent. Remember Philippians 3, starting verse 12. Now as though I have, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which were behind, my old life, forgetting whatever the Lord saved me out of, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Remember what Jesus told us in Revelation 3, verse 11. 
Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which, that ha- which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. See, you and I have something that we can lose, a crown. It's not our salvation. It's a crown. It's a place. It's, it's a position with the Lord. Okay, look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If he then, we'll close with this, if he then shall rise with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. See, when, you, when he comes down from heaven and meets us in the air and calls us home, you get to appear in your resurrected body in glory with him. You get caught up instantaneously, and your real life from that point on will begin. Because right now, your life, look at verse 3, your life is hid with Christ in God. Your real life, your future, what you'll be doing for all eternity right now, is hid with Christ. And really, really, honestly, the question as a believer is, do you trust him enough with that future to give him your present? Because if you don't give him your present, you're not trusting him with your future. You have to surrender and submit to him now in order for that future to be hid with him. So do you trust him enough with your future that you will give him your present? That's the question. And all of this is modeled after the Jewish wedding. There's a betrothal, a payment of the purchase price. The bride is set apart, sanctified. The bridegroom, after that covenant is established, departs for his father's house, where he prepares a room addition. And the bride is to forever be in her wedding attire, waiting for the imminent return of the bridegroom. It's a surprise gathering. She never knows when he's going to return. And he comes down usually at night, but with a a host with him with trumpets and they blow trumpets and the the bride will get on this platform. I don't know what you you call it. You've all seen it in the movies. But with the poles, the bride will sit on it and she's literally lifted up in the air and then they go to the wedding. So that's the Jewish wedding. The Galilean model of the wedding is based on the church. Because the covenant was established. It was Jesus, Jesus established that covenant. The Lord, I mean, established that covenant with the purchase price of his son from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. The bride, we are to be set apart from Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Hebrews 10, 10. We are to be reminded of the covenant continually in 1 Corinthians 11, 25 through 26. The bridegroom left for the father's house in John 14, Remember, Jesus, I went to prepare a place for you, and where you go or where I go, I will come again to bring you so that where I am you may be. The marriage is a surprise gathering of, there's a surprise gathering of his bride to be taken away to the marriage. And that surprise gathering is the rapture, and the marriage ceremony is at the Father's house as a small, intimate gathering. And even in the Jewish tradition, there's then seven days of celebration followed by a larger gathering for the supper after those seven days. Just amazing. So we've got to be prepared. Um, as, you, as you look and you see as Jesus is 
is going to call us home at some point. We have to be serious about our walk with the Lord. Don't let the, Lord, the world sway us around. Persevere to the end and finish strong. Finish strong so that when Jesus calls us home, you can stand before him totally unashamed with nothing that you've left on the field. You left it all out there, right? You left it all out there and you've run hard to finish the race and the Lord is then going to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And your life on this earth from, from birth to death or the rapture, whichever one takes us home first, all of that just goes away like a vapor and you start a new life in him and with him for eternity. But right now it's that training ground. So if you're here, if you're, if you're watching this and you don't know the Lord, the first step is to get born again. It's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. Do it today and don't delay Seal, you will then be sealed with the Holy Spirit as the promise of an earnest deposit from the Lord. Kind of like when you buy a house, right? In Ephesians, it calls, the Lord calls it an earnest deposit where he's making an earnest deposit in you to promise, to promise to purchase that in the future. It's the exact same thing. And then everything you did in your life will be turned from crimson to white as wool. So with that, let's close in prayer. Uh, feel free to reach out to us if you guys need anything at all. Uh, if you're watching this online, just send us an email if you need anything. We are happy to help. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your return and the promise of your return. Lord, we thank you so much that we have that to look forward to and we are to live expectantly that at any moment, you could call us home. And we thank you that, Lord, because of that, you've placed inside of us an urgency to not take walking with you lightly, but to live out for you, no matter what we see around us and no matter what the world would throw at us, Lord, but to live for you as the King of Kings. And Lord, we thank you so much that we get to gather together without the threat of persecution, without the threat of endangerment. We thank you, Lord, that you are our guardian and that this is a safe place to come and to study your word. And we praise you for it. Be with us as we leave this place, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray all of these things, Lord. Amen.